When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Smattering. I'm Jason Hall, joined by the voice of the people, Jeff Santoro. Jeff, we are back, baby. We are back. It's been a while. Good to see you. It has. Good to see you too, even though we actually saw each other like yeah, three right. days ago in person. But first time we've recorded a pod in about a week. It's really, it's good. I'm excited about this one, Jeff, because this is one, you know, we have our Twitter and you know, I we like to ask questions and and see what people are thinking and get responses. And we ask the question, "What's the hardest part about investing?" So what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to we got eight or ten replies, and then we have our own thoughts about this too. So we're going to go through what our followers on Twitter shared with us and um, kind of weigh in a little bit ourselves. But before we do that, Jeff, besides our Twitter account. People want to get in touch with us. They want to share ideas. They want to ask questions. How do they do that? So uh, besides the Twitter account, they can reach us at thesmatteringshow at gmail.com. And we also have a YouTube channel. You can just search for The Smattering. Um, We appreciate ratings and reviews and spreading the word. Um, We're really trying to grow the audience for the pod um, even more than we have so far. I think we've been off to a good start over the first couple months here, but, yeah. um, if you're listening to this and you're enjoying it, um, you know, do us a favor and let, let friends know about it, post about it on social media, retweet our tweets and things like that. We're really trying to spread the word and get, get the, uh, podcast out to a wider audience. But, um, as always, we appreciate the feedback and, you know, you know where to reach us. Yeah, absolutely. Keep it coming. That's for sure. That is for sure. All right, Jeff, let's, um, let's get right to it here. What, What's the hardest part about investing? Well, what I loved about the responses we got is as I, as I look at them here on the screen, I, I read through all eight of them plus our two, it's like I think there's aspects of all of these that I think probably everyone struggles with at some point, right? So even if it's not like the hardest thing for any individual person, I think all of these are great. So I'll, get to, I'll start with the first one. We got this one on Twitter from Ken Taylor. Um, who's reached out to us a few times, so thanks, Ken. Um, and he wrote just simply, disconnecting. And I, I think that's a big, big, big thing for a lot of people, especially I, I just speaking from my own experience, when you're newer to investing, um, it's tempting to just constantly be checking in on your brokerage account or refreshing Yahoo Finance or whatever. This is up, this is down, what's my portfolio doing? Um, and I think until you develop some discipline that can lead to some over, overactive, you know, trading where you, you know, making decisions you don't need to make simply because you're so connected to everything. Um, but I thought that was a really good one and a good place to start. What do you think about that one? Yeah. As a starting point, you know me, I'm kind of a data junkie and the, the data is overwhelming that the average individual investor underperforms the market, if somebody invests in a certain fund, like um, Peter Lynch ran the Magellan Fund you know, two decades, was the best investment you could, you could make for two decades. The average investor in that fund 
not only underperform the fund, but I think there's some data that they actually underperform the S&P 500 in the best investment. And that, and that gets to exactly what you're talking about, right? The, the constant taking action, right? And, and we go back to when he was running the Magellan Fund that was in the 80s and the early 90s before we had, you know, 24-hour financial news and Twitter and smartphones with our brokerage accounts and, you know, $0 trading fees and all of those things that have reduced the friction to trade, I'm going to specifically use the word trade here, uh, have reduced the friction to trade substantially, while the, the, the noise ratio has also been amplified so much, right? So I, I love this from, from Ken, because I think part of it too, Jeff, is that if you think about the kind of person that's going to be drawn to individual investing, actually actively managing a portfolio, picking stocks, all of that stuff, it's probably going to be somebody that's been successful in something, right? They have money, right? They probably have something that they're highly skilled in, right? They're probably competitive. So there's ego that comes along with all of those things, right? And then all of the things I described before, it is a thing that you can literally do something with. You can actively do something with all of the time, right? There's after hours trades, um, there's all of these things that you can do all of the time. This is the data junkie part of me. Despite the fact that the evidence is overwhelming that the best investors, the most successful individual investors, are the ones that tend to do the least, right? Um, you shared it before, some, some data about like some of the best investors, individual investors are the ones that like they lost their password <laughs> and they didn't bother to find it to go log into their account or sadly, people that died, right? Right, yeah. And the accounts were left alone. Um, but I think that says a lot about investing in general, that if a dead guy can outperform you, you probably should reevaluate the active things that you're doing. So disconnecting, I, I Ken, I think you kind of hit it out of the park, because it's fucking hard, guys. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah. Jeff, you I and think- I have excuse an excuse to be active and, and plugged in, because we write, Right, we do a podcast, we make videos, um, and and we're like drug addicts, and that's our excuse because we also sell drugs, right? Right. Yeah, I love I love when we compare ourselves to to drug addicts and dealers. I think that's the right brand for us. Well, the other thing, you know, the the last thing you just said there kind of made me think about something else because so much of what we have to do is spend our time sort of keeping up with the news, and part of the way we do that is on you know uh, Twitter or FinTwit, as it's commonly known in, in the world of investing. And I think that's another place that it's worth thinking about disconnecting, because I, I remember distinctly being a new investor in the 2020 and 2021 bull market, and it's really hard to fight FOMO when every third tweet is someone singing the praises of this company or that company with rocket ship emojis. Um, you know, I think I'm a pretty non-FOMO person by, you know, generally, but it was, I, I got pulled into thinking and, and, and looking into certain companies because everyone was talking about them. And I think in the absence of that constant chatter, I might've had a little bit more discipline on some of the mistakes I made early on. So I think that's another aspect of it. Um, all right, let's go on to the next one here. So this one came from uh, Nathan Warden and he wrote, my investing style is based on the idea that I can hold through large drawdowns but I now have three excruciating examples of when I sold low simply because of emotions. 
and then he added yikes. So why don't you kick us off with that one, Jason? How do you feel about that in, in terms of being a difficult part of investing? Yeah, it, you know, one of the things we do we love to do is influencers or pundits or whatever you want to call us, stock jockeys, is we, we love to show charts that show market drawdowns or stocks falling. You know, Netflix fell 80% in 2012 and, you know, then delivered 34 fold returns or, you know, that kind of stuff. We love talk, talking about that kind of stuff. But sometimes we, we don't do a very good job of describing what it's like to be in the middle of those drawdowns, you know. Um, Nathan, I get it. I absolutely get it because there's there's the trip, right, from the beginning of your investing journey to the end, and then there's the journey itself and actually the being in the moment. I can tell you um, spring of 2009 was scary, was absolutely scary, right? We didn't know what was going to happen with the economy around the world. Tens of millions of Americans, just Americans, had lost their jobs, right? There was like real concern that Bank of America, the, at the time the biggest bank in the U.S., was going to go bankrupt because of investments that it had made and things that it had acquired and its own problems. There was, I mean, there was blood in the streets. It was terrifying. The coronavirus pandemic, marked last you know, March of 2020, Jeff, people were literally dying, right? The blood in the streets was human beings dying. We did not know what things, and it's easy now, you know, two, two and a half years later, um, you know, we've, we've, it's easy to have forgotten what it actually felt like to be in those things. And I do some editing for The Motley Fool too, and every once in a while I'll see an article come across with somebody talking about like a stock being down 70% in April of 2020. And there's this hindsight by, obviously this was a great opportunity to buy. And I kick it back every time and I'd be like, do you remember what it was like? Right? Do you actually remember what it's like? So all that to say, Nathan, I get it. I absolutely get it. And I think this is tied to Ken's, Ken's thing, right? Sometimes we get caught up in thinking we need to act and that act needs to buy, means you know we need to buy because the market's drawn down. And then we start looking at our portfolio and things get scary and we sell, right? Sometimes the best thing to do is just disconnect. Yeah. I'm, and I've heard a bunch of people in various places say things like, I don't let myself do anything after I have an idea for 48 hours or I have a two-week rule about buying and selling. And I think any sort of friction you can put in place um, between an idea you have and actually executing on it can help with both of these last two comments. Um, I know for myself, like I'm most likely to feel like I want to do something when I have free time and I'm, but then I will get really busy at work for a couple days in a row where it's like, you know, basically come home, sleep and eat only. And then I finally get a chance to catch my breath and I'm like, oh yeah, like four days ago, I really wanted to sell that company, you know? And then it's like, well, it's good. I had that some time to think about it because now I don't want to anymore. So I think all those sort of tips and tricks can help too. Um, all right. Our next one here I think is interesting. So uh, this is from Eric DeVore on Twitter and he wrote, seeing days like today, having still not purchased a few at the top of my watch list. Now, what I love about this is I didn't go back to check if the day he wrote that was a, a up day or a down day, but I kind of think it doesn't matter because you could have that feeling about um, 
not purchasing something on your watch list when the when the market's really up and you say to yourself, oh man, I missed my opportunity. But you could also say it when the market's really down and saying like, oh, uh, maybe now is the time. Like, why didn't I do this? You know what I mean? Like it can kind of go both ways. I'm guessing this was an up day um, when he wrote it. We can go back and check. But I, I feel this one all the time Yep. Uh, where I the market does something that makes me say, oh, I should have bought that list that bought that company I've been looking at for, you know, the past three weeks or two months or whatever it is. Um, it was October 4th. It was October 4th. It was an up day. It was a yeah. big, big up day. All of the indices were up close to 3%. And the NASDAQ was up over 3%. That's a very, very good day to see, yeah. you know, hundreds of stocks moving forward. Um, but yeah, so it's the, you know, I like this one too. Um, because it reminds me of, you know, the, the, the premise and there's a lot of really good investors that have like long-term focused investors that have talked about like the reality with markets and that time in the markets is in your favor, right? Because stocks, when we have a market sell off, those happen fast, right? Those happen super fast. Um, but inexorably, the bull market, the recovery, and you know, I don't l- really love bull market because you say bull market versus bear market as if it's these binary things. And really what a bull market is, is just an extended period of normal, healthy economic growth, right? That's all it is. And those tend to last a long time, right? So, um, you know, I, I think that's important to remember. And there's FOMO here too, right? Because whenever you see big market movements happen one way or the other, you're, you're automatically drawn to that directionality, right? Right. The, 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 you need to sell. The market's down. I got to get out. I got to avoid the pain. Market's bouncing back. Chances are you're going to feel that pull. I need to buy. I need to buy. I need to buy. Um, this is how we're, how we're wired, right? Yeah. How I, we're wired. I think what's one thing that I'm thinking about with this particular one is there's no one day in the market ever that's going to, well, I shouldn't say there's never going to be a day, but it's very rare that even a big up day, like three, four or 5% is going to be the kind of thing where like, if you missed it, that's your only opportunity, you know, like there will always be another chance. And so I think what it should, I think the good thing that can come out of that is maybe it's the attention getter you need to do, to do the research or do the back, you know, the due diligence, whatever, to determine if you feel that way, then buy it. Well, you know what I mean? Like maybe that's the kick in the pants you need to make the decision to buy it or not. But I think if it motivates you to like do a little bit more work to think about whether it's the right thing for you to do, I think that's a good thing. If it motivates you to just blindly open your brokerage account and click buy, probably not the best thing. But I this one hit me in the feels because I, I've had this happen to me so many times where I've been looking at a stock, earnings come out or something, it's up 15%. And I'm like, ugh. I literally was thinking about this two weeks ago, and I didn't do it. So I get it. Right. It's hard. But I think it's also part of why you have your process, right? That, that you look to deploy a little bit of cash right. every week. You know, it's one of the reasons you have that process, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, that that's my way personally of um, mitigating that a little bit is I'm going to buy every Wednesday no matter what. Next one here. Yeah, I love I love this one because it's, it's tied for the um, second shortest – Right, it's tied for the second shortest one. This is from our friend Irritable Investor. 
Stocks going down. Those three words. <laughs> the hardest part of investing. Stocks going down. I think irritable investor was being a little tongue in cheek. Yeah. But he's not, not wrong. No, not wrong. <laughs> not wrong at all. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah. Um, it is the hardest part. I and again, it it's a different type of hard depending on the type of person you are. It's a different type of hard depending on where you are in your um, investing life. Like for example, stocks going down is super difficult for you when you're about to retire. You know, like and you're counting on that money sooner rather than later. If you still are, you know, heavily invested in stocks, um, I. When I was new, it really hit me hard because I was like, oh, no, I made some horrible mistake. Everything's down. When you, when you, at the beginning and at the end, that's when it can be the hardest because at the beginning, yeah. you don't know what the hell you're doing. Yeah. And at the end, that's, that's when it can materially impact your quality of life. Right. But in, but in all those years in between, you, we've talked about this on previous episodes, you, you, you want to get to the point where you look at those as opportunities and not as... Um, lost opportunities, right? You want to look at those as like, oh, this is down, the market's down, this is ch- a chance to buy more shares of the companies I have the highest conviction in that are good businesses that are going to be here for a long time, that I'm going to hold for a long time. Um, but yeah, I think we can move on from that one because it's pretty pretty short and sweet, but I think everyone... I want to add one more thing, Jeff. Yeah. Of course I do, right? But Never ready to move on, Jason. Always, always have to add one more thing. Belaboring the point. No, I think this is an important one. I think you'll agree after I say it. Um, Morgan Housel, this is something Morgan Housel, he's a partner at Collaborative um, Fund, and he is a board member at Markel. Um, he is so good at distilling complex things down. And one of the things that he's written about numerous times um, that I think really kind of gets to the heart of this, like the, the stocks going down thing, is we're wired, we've evolved that pain hurts worse than pleasure feels good, right? Um, because it's, it's kept this, we've survived as a species, we've flourished because of that thing. Now it's counter to being a successful investor because a 10% decline for a stock that you intend to own for 20 years and it's a high quality business doesn't actually hurt you, but it does actually physically hurt you. You feel pain in your pain center. When you look at your portfolio and you see that 10% decline, that same stock could go up 50% and you'll feel good, but not as good as you felt bad. Right. Exactly. Right. Yep. That's, that's the thing. So it's, it's real. But I think knowing you're right. I agree, Jason. That was a good point. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, cause knowing that's important, right? Like when you feel the negative harder, that's how you, you combat your emotions. You exactly. understand your wiring and then you can act in your best interest despite what your brain is telling you to do. Right. All right. Here's Colin's got a good one for us. Colin, uh, Colin Wah. Uh, all right. So feeling confident what I'm doing today is going to get me to my magic number I need in the time frame I want it. I love that one. Yeah, it's a it's it's goals based, right? It's it's establishing a time frame to re, to reach a financial goal and knowing what that goal is, right? The magic number is the goal, the time frame to get there. Um, yeah, this is you know particularly when you go through periods like the past ten months, Jeff, where here we are, we're almost eleven months into the year, and you know, we're, we're 
I think the S and P is still in bear market. I think it's still down more than twenty percent from the high. The Nasdaq one hundred is down over thirty percent. We talked about bonds, right? Interest rates have skyrocketed. Bond prices have fallen sharply. Um, years like this make it really hard to know if you're doing the right things. They make you question your process. They make you question your sanity. Um, all of those things. So you know, feeling confident, like Colin says, finding that mental edge to maintain through these um, kind of environments is, is t- tough. Yeah, I mean, what resonates with me personally with this one is um, over the past several months, I've been uh, taking a, a chunk of money that I rolled over from an old retirement account that's now in an IRA, and I've been selling off little bits of it. Right now, it's just in an, in, um, an ETF that tracks the entire stock market. And I've been selling off little pieces of it slowly over time and, and using that that money to buy individual stocks. It's just my way of like slowly transitioning that chunk of change from your dollar cost averaging over time. Correct. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to lie. Like there are times when I say to myself, like, I hope, I think everything that I've learned and all that everyone, everyone I've talked to tells me, and I have enough time left in my working life that in the long term, this is going to be the right decision. Um, but yeah, like I, I would be lying if I said there weren't moments where I said, Maybe I should just leave this in an, in an ETF and not not try to overthink it, because um, you know the market will, on average, give me what nine ten percent a year, right over over the long term. Like that's what the right. data shows. Right. So, which I, I essentially get doubles your money about every eight years. That's, right. That's that's yeah. what the market can do for you. Now I know I can do better than that if I am wise in what the stocks I purchase, but maybe I'm not wise. <laughs> so yeah, you know I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm. I'm cognizant of that, and it's it enters my mind. So, I, Colin, I, I get you on this one. Um, all right, here's another short one here from uh, Ship of Fools GD on Twitter. Um, he just simply wrote, "Cash flow, right? Hardest part of investing, cash flow. Yeah, you need cash to invest. <laughs> that's that's a pretty simple one. So, how do you how do you think about that, Jason? Because this is one thing that like. If you're at a point in, um, if you're at a point where, you know, you're not sure how much to to put into investing, or or times are tight, whatever the situation is, um, you know, the whole like start small and, and add when you can kind of thing is what pops into my mind. But I I don't know what your thoughts are on this. I, I think as a starting point, you have to have a plan, right? It gets back to that. You have to have some sort of a framework, and. You have to make sure, number one, that you save yourself first and you have that money outside of the market, right? And that you manage your expenses. And I think part of it, too, is part of saving yourself first is not just building out that cash cushion for the emergency fund and all that kind of stuff, but saving for yourself first. You know, I think you need to have a kid, have a young kid, kid younger than younger than yours, Jeff. And I've prioritized my 401k and my wife's 401k dollars before his college savings dollars, right? Um, I just think it's that important that we focus on ourselves first when it comes to saving. And by, by focusing on putting money in those investing accounts first, you'll adjust your discretionary spending. If you, if you, Take the track. This is me. Maybe you know. Other, it's different for other people. But if you take the approach of, 
you know, saving what's left over, you're going to have left less to cash flow to invest because I guarantee there's going to be discretionary spending that you do that you don't manage as well. So if you focus on the investing first, your discretionary spending will come more in line. What do you think? Yeah, I like that. What what I wish I had done when I was younger is thought about how much to invest in terms of percentages of my income versus dollar amounts. So, you know, I wish I had thought to myself, I want whatever, I don't know what I would have decided on, but let's just say 10% of my salary I want to go into my investing, you know, account, whether it's my, um, you know, retirement account through work or whether it's through an IRA or whatever. Um, And what I, because I just didn't think of it that way when I was younger. So it was always a dollar amount in my head. And then, you know, I, I would leave it for multiple years and then it would never increase as my salary went up. Right. Whereas like if it had just gone with my salary, I wouldn't have noticed, you know, noticed the impact. So, um, but yeah, it's, um, you do, I like your, I like the way you framed it. You need to have a plan and then kind of think through how you're going to deploy it. Um, and part of how, and part of that plan is, you know, we use percentages of, of today's money to arrive at the whole numbers that are future money. Right. Right. So, sometimes I think we kind of get that flipped around like you were talking about. So if I was going to pick one of the ones we got from another listener that most closely aligns with my own hardest part about investing, it's this one. And this comes from Todd Kennedy on Twitter. Staying focused on a set number of stocks I have conviction in and building those positions. Every time I have cash, my mind wanders towards the latest and greatest opportunity. This is probably my biggest struggle. Do I add to what I have? Do I add to my existing positions and the ones I have high conviction in? Or do I go find another stock that I also have high conviction in but don't yet own? Um, I I want to hear your thoughts because you have a much larger portfolio than I do in terms of number of stocks. But what I found with this one is I'm as I've invested for longer, I'm more interested in building out the positions of what I own than I am finding the new thing. But I think that's because I've learned about the companies I currently own so much more over time. Like I know them well. So I feel right. like when I'm going to put another chunk of change into a company I've owned for two or three years now, I do that with a little bit more confidence because I know what I'm looking for. I know what the signs are that the business is doing well or struggling. I know what, what could be a short-term headwind versus a long-term tailwind. Um, whereas when I was new, like everything I had the same amount of information on almost everything, so I was much more drawn to the shiny new thing. Um, but I know you have a different take on it. I think you're more likely to grab a little bit of the shiny new thing because that will get you to pay more attention to it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think the way that I talk about it might be a little bit different than the actual kind of the mechanical process that I have because by and large the vast bulk of the dollars, new dollars that I invest, Jeff, are going into stocks that I already own. You know, I would say 85% probably. Um, but I do, like you said, that, that process, right? Um, when, I, when I add a new stock to my portfolio, it tends to be a very small position. That's getting the game, like you said, to start learning um, about the company. And then once I own it, all of the things you said, I get to know it better then the dollars that flow towards it begin to get bigger if the company's doing what it's supposed to do, right? If it's doing the things that I bought it to do. So 
um, again, on a raw dollar number or on raw dollars, yeah, I, it's still very much um, Peter Lynch is the best stock to buy, maybe one you already own. Um, I tend to, tend to definitely gra- gravitate towards that. And what you see happen is that you reinvest in those winners, right? The ones that the businesses are, are killing it, right? They're doing really, really well. They're doing all the business stuff you want to do. And eventually the stock follows, right? Either the stock has done well, or maybe, you know, eventually it's going to, even if it hasn't done well. And the ones that haven't done well, that you don't invest new capital in, they become steadily less and less relevant. Even if you, even if you maybe take a long time before you actually sell, before you move on. Because um, that's one thing I'm glacial about that. I, I take years before I decide to sell a company. Yeah, and no, I think that's, I like the way of thinking of it as, you know, it can be in your portfolio at such a small dollar amount that you can sort of leave it there to learn about and add to your higher conviction stocks as you go. Um, all right, one more here that we got that I think I, I think I understand what this what this is asking, but I just want to I'll read it the way it is. So, how to judge the cha- if the change is going to be short term or permanent is what we got from Hulkley Seven on Twitter, um, and I'm assuming that means like if if there's a a downturn for the stock, you know, it drops four or five, six percent or something. How to know if that's going to be a short term concern or a long term or a permanent loss of something like that? I'm guessing that's where this is coming from. Um, so, based on that, my first take is this is where not thinking about the market's reaction, but looking at the business's results is your best chance at having the answer to that question. Um, and and for each individual company, knowing what's going to drive its future um, success, you know that we've talked about KPIs before the um, key the performance key, key performance indicators. Right. So knowing that company X, it's really important for them to grow their subscribers that spend fifty thousand dollars or more. Right. If that's the thing you know they need to do, go look at that. And if all of a sudden that has fallen off a cliff, and management is talking about how you know there's been a change in the industry and they're not seeing large, you know, large customers in the volume that they used to, then maybe that is a, you know, a more permanent piece of bad news that you need to consider when making decisions. But if you go back and look and everything's heading in the right direction and the, any short-term blips can kind of be explained by things that make sense that you think are temporary. Um, but I think, you know, again, it, the business result, not the market result, I think is your best chance of getting an answer to that. Yeah. And this, this might have been, been my favorite one, Jeff, and I'll be honest with you. One of the things I like about this exercise is, is you know, you, I think you and I are kind of, you know, interpreting this one a little bit different. And the way I interpreted it um, is kind of like I, I recorded a couple of videos today looking at meta platforms and looking at Alphabet, right, the parent company of Google and YouTube and all that stuff. So meta platforms, the way I think about this you know, how to judge the change going to be short-term or permanent is we saw average revenue per person, which every, literally everybody else calls average revenue per user. It's a really important ad business revenue number, a platform revenue number. How much do the people that use your platform generate in, you know, on an individual basis? And every quarter this year, meta platforms, our average revenue per user has fallen, okay? That's a really big deal because it corresponds with Apple making privacy changes and Facebook and, and Instagram's ability to follow users off of those platforms 
because the data informs a lot about the effectiveness of the ads that it sells. And they can't do that anymore, right? I mean, it's it's basically been cut off because very few people go into the app and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to find that setting and I'm going to say yes, right? People say no because they want they want privacy. And I think this is a really good one because it, there's a clear correlation between this average revenue per person and Apple making that switch. Um, but we don't know right now because, again, it's only three quarters and it's also happens to be in a really crappy time in the ad business. I shouldn't say crappy. It's 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 a lot better than Meta wants us to think it is, right? But yeah. it's not great. Yeah. Figuring out is this is this a permanent change? Has it has is is Meta's ad business less valuable today than it was a year or two ago? Right. We don't know the answer to that. Right. But that's a really that's a really good example because that's. That's one of those like one of the biggest topics in the market right now is yeah that 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 advertising you know the future of advertising right right and, and then the flip side you look this aligns with the same thing YouTube's ad revenue declined last quarter and it's this is supposed to be a major growth engine for Alphabet so again the same thing um, at a smaller scale for another company so I think these are really this is a really good one because. Jeff, it actually kind of gets to to yours. Yeah, and my so I almost didn't want to come up with my own because as I said earlier as we were going through these there were I would say that the hardest part about investing for me is all of the things that everyone else said. Like all of them. I I, I this is not binary. These are all right. well within the bell curve. Right. So the way so I'll so if I had to pick one and it's one that like we haven't talked about yet, but it's one that you and I did talk about on our How We Invest series, which is when to sell. So I will admit that while I don't sell often and I end up appearing like I'm disciplined with it, I think about selling way more than I probably should. And it's only like what I've learned that pause stops me from doing it. Um, and so I think for me, it's still... You know, I, I'm I'm interested in having less stocks in my portfolio because I have more than I'm able to keep up with, and that stresses me out because I'm a weirdo who likes to know everything about all of them. So that's my challenge personally: is like I want to have less, so I'm always looking like, should I sell this? Should I sell that? Um, so it's like I typically don't like I know enough to kind of stop myself um, until I maybe I need to come up with some sort of process some sort of like rubric or something I don't know to kind of decide what when I'm going to actually sell some things but that's mine if I had to pick one that we haven't talked about here um, it's it's just when to sell it. it you know it's something I constantly think about and still struggle with what about you what what's your what's the hardest part of it, about investing for you Jason I'm going to piss you off you ready why should this be like different than any other episode Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I think having now gone through this this process um, and thought about all of these and discussed the one that you just brought up, I, th- I think maybe that's the same for me. Honestly, I really do. This is really funny because before we recorded, everybody you just told me not to I steal yours, Jeff, and then you steal I told mine. Jeff that I didn't want to share mine with him because he was just going to steal it. I was being tongue in cheek. And now I'm stealing his. But no, Jeff, I'm serious. And here, let me, I want to build on what you just said. I really do. Because I do think this is really, really hard. Um, number one, I think 
the evidence, again, is overwhelmingly clear. Most investors sell too much and they sell too quick, right? You hear bullshit little phrases like you, get, you buy a stock and it doubles. It's house money. No, it's not. It's all your money. It's all your money, okay? It, you sell it, half of it, because it doubled. You know, you're punishing yourself because you made a good decision when you bought that company, right? So having those, like, those kind of like strict frameworks are terrible, terrible for your long-term returns because it's so damn hard to find a great stock as it is, right? It's so hard to find those ones that generate these returns that are so good that they make up for your, the ones that don't do well, right? And selling early is the f- best way to just destroy that, right? So, but then again, we talk about meta. I'm going to go back to that one. A year ago, the stock was up ninefold from the day of the IPO. It's up even more, like it was down for the first six months after it went public. But if you invested $1,000 the day of the IPO, you had like $9,200 a year ago. You've got like $2,600 today, right? So I love this one because one of the things I think that's really healthy to do is to look back at stocks, whether it's a stock you own or not, maybe it's just a notable one like this one, that declined sharply and look at it and look at everything that was going on with the business, with the market, as much information as you can and try to learn from it and try and come to some sort of conclusion. And I think you'll find a lot of the times the conclusion is, I don't know. I don't see anything that would have t- informed me to have sold, right? And, and, and I j- but I think it's a really healthy process to go through because when you look back and you learn and you come to the conclusion, well, there's nothing that I really necessarily could have seen, it informs the fact that we know the process that tends to work is the one that is to buy great companies, as many as you're comfortable holding, enough to be diversified, and hold them as long as you possibly can, right? It informs that that's still the best way to do it and not to spend too much time trying to find the perfect exit point. Right. And what's important in all of that is you, you'll be wrong sometimes. You'll be wrong maybe a lot of the time. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a feature of, of being a stock investor. It's not a, yep. it's not a, it's not a failure. It's a feature. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So I think we got to all the all the responses we got, Jason, we got to cover the two that we had, which you, you ruined by stealing mine, but we'll, we'll just ignore that for now. Um, I made it better. I made it better. <laughs> all right. This so was fun. And, and, and friends that everybody that participated in this conversation, thank you. It's awesome. And we could have 800 more people weigh in with 800 slight variants of this one because it's, What's the hardest part of, invest, of investing, Jeff? All of it. All of it. All of investing is the hardest part of investing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This and was, I would just, I'll just wrap up by saying, you know, for those of you listening, um, you know, give our, our Twitter accounts a, fo- a follow because we'll, as we think of more ideas for shows that we want to be interactive, we'll, that's where we'll be, you know, posting questions. So you can follow the show at Smattering Show, but you can also follow Jason at The Smattering and me at Market Musician and... Uh, you know, look look for that. We'll we'll be interactive and get your ideas. So, Jason, I think we did it, man. Why don't you disclose us, Jeff? You and I love to ask these questions and give our own answers. But friends, it's important that you find your answer. We come up with our answers. Maybe they help you inform yours. But you have to come up with your own answers, Jeff. 
we have the smartest listeners in all of podcasting. They yep. can do it, right? They can absolutely do it. You can do it, people. Jeff, appreciate it, man. See you next time. See you next time. <laughs>